This is Glenn Crooks on frame. In soccer, uh, it's uh, very much the age of analytics. So I do come from uh, the old school of uh, putting things on paper, watching film from a VHS, fast forwarding and rewinding years ago. And uh, then I got involved with Game Breaker uh, in the latter part of my uh, college experience, which helped you break down film for players. I'm not, I'm not an old fogey, but this thing, expected goals, goals added, chance qualities. I mean, there's all these different analytic things now, which have, have really started to become part of a part of the fabric. And John Muller is a part of that. He uh, edits the NYCFC uh, site, The Outfield. Uh, he's a soccer writer. He's just uh, engaged in a newsletter. Then we'll talk about that. He's also a contributor to American Soccer Analysis. And uh, we met through the NYCFC circles and started following each other. And uh, John, welcome. Uh, I'm thrilled to have you on to talk about all this so that I have a greater understanding, I hope, by the end of our conversation. How are you? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me. I love uh, talking about this stuff. I don't, I'm not sure where to start, uh, but I will start with yourself. I mean, I, I noticed uh, that uh, a lot of these uh, analysts are, you know, mathematicians, scientists, which makes sense, but don't necessarily have a soccer background. Where, where do you fit in in that, uh, that shelf? Yeah, so I, I work a lot with American Soccer Analysis, which is a collection of, you know, hardcore data types, people with science backgrounds and, and data analytics backgrounds. Um, I don't have that technical education. I do have, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in that fanalytics group, right? The, the folks who are interested in sabermetrics uh, and, and more advanced stats. Uh, and I feel like I, you know, pay attention to the game and how it actually works. And so then I work with the scientists and the data scientists uh, to help, you know, try to uh, implement their insights, I guess you could say. So, but in the past, before you got involved with this, would you watch games and analyze them? Do you have any coaching in your background or playing in your background? Uh, so I, I don't really have uh, any kind of formal education in the game. What I do have is a lot of years of, like you, obsessively watching tape. And then as, uh, you know, stats have become an increasing part of the game, I've, I've also really enjoyed trying to understand what they can teach us about the game to kind of deepen my knowledge. Well, I, I want to tell you one of the uh, – I've been wanting to talk to you about this, but the uh, uh, the stimulus to contact you immediately is when you put this uh, first newsletter out, and uh, you entitled it Space, 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 and you referred to a Guardian article by Steve uh, Sid Lowe, which was February 2011, with Xavi, the former Barcelona midfielder. So I want you to know that uh, – I copied that article and I uh, highlighted certain things in there, space, 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 one of them. And every one of my club teams and my college teams since then, uh, they, they get a copy of it. And uh, we, we emphasize uh, because who, who greater than Xavi in finding space and scanning and delivering early passes. And, uh, but tell us about how that impacted you. That's right. Uh, so I told you that I've, you know, obsessively watched games for uh, about a decade now. And that really started with Guardiola's Barcelona. And, you know, just looking at how obviously different they were from every other soccer team on the field and trying to understand how that came about, how that happened. I loved that Javi interview with Silo because he emphasized that his job was all about finding space. That is, it wasn't about, you know, creating goals. It wasn't even about passes per se. It was about creating space on the field. And I, I wrote in that introductory newsletter about how, you know, at the time that Javi had that interview with Sid Lowe, uh, analytics was really in its infancy in soccer. And we didn't have the tools back then to measure the kinds of things that Javi really cared about. 
And, you know, fast forward 10 years and at least at the very highest levels of clubs and academics and people have access to the best data, uh, we're starting to see an increasing number of tools out there that, that really help us to measure, uh, you know, soccer in, in new, interesting ways that align better with what Javi cared about. So explain how analytics fits in with space, space, space. Give uh, an example or two of how, how it's utilized. Sure. So uh, let's see. I guess maybe it would help to kind of talk about what analytics are and, and where they come from. Please, yeah. But maybe we should define that early on here and uh, go yeah. for it. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. So, so, you know, uh, when we think about stats in soccer, the most obvious stats are, are points and goals, right? We've always kept track of those. But we haven't really, for uh, most of the history of the game, kept track of much of anything else. It was only in 1994 that FIFA even started counting assists. You know, player stats just weren't important. Uh, and that's in part because it's really hard to measure all the things that go on in a soccer game. Uh, but in the mid-90s and increasing in the, in the 2000s, companies like Opta and more recently StatsBomb have started logging every single thing that happens in a soccer game. You know, they've got people, multiple people, uh, coding each event that happens on the ball. And once you start to code all those events that happen on the ball, every pass, every tackle, every shot, uh, you can start to do things with those statistics to try to understand the game better. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how analytics started to become a thing was we had suddenly all of this more robust data about what was happening on the field. And so we could analyze, uh, you know, lots of games at once instead of rewinding our VHS tapes over and over and trying to scribble notes to make sense of, you know, what had happened in those games. Yeah, and John, from a broadcasting standpoint, the Optostats are, are nice to see, maybe at halftime in particular, kind of presenting the picture of uh, who's keeping the ball best. Uh, but the, the one thing, and, and you seem to be inspired by this guy, William Spearman, so we need to talk about him a little bit, because uh, the space, space, space aspect of this still, if you just look at the Optostats, it's number of touches and possession, and it, it doesn't get into the detail of space, but apparently this guy, William Spearman, who's the, who is a scientist, but he's at Liverpool and he's their secret weapon, apparently. And uh, tell us about William Spearman and how um, that helps inspire you maybe to move forward with some of this. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. A second ago, uh, you know, I mentioned that the best clubs are doing stuff that's way beyond uh, that kind of counting passes and tackles that we just talked about a minute ago. And in the last decade, uh, we've, we've seen this transition where uh, just really only a handful of clubs in the world, uh, including Liverpool, Barcelona, Arsenal, uh, have started to hire really, really smart people like William Spearman to do more advanced things with soccer data. So William Spearman uh, works for Liverpool, like you said. He's a physicist by training. Uh, I think he grew up in Texas, went to Harvard, worked at uh, CERN, the laboratory in, in Europe that you know helped discover the Higgs bosons and all that really advanced physics stuff. Uh, but he's also a soccer fan, and so he started working with, with soccer data. And he hey, got can I, before you before you yeah. go, can I I want to read uh, uh, a portion of this Atlantic article, then I want you to to follow up on it on this guy Spearman. It was written by Simon Hughes, and this was just published a few days ago. Spearman was hired at Liverpool because of his understanding of player tracking data, having created a statistical tool at Huddle and huddle we use at, at PDA where I coach, uh, which measured levels of control across a football pitch. Tracking data is where the ball and players are tracked, usually at a rate of once every 25th 
of a second using in-ground cameras. Uh, this data complements the events recorded by the likes of Opta, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, final paragraph here that I'll read. The tool was of, in of interest for Liverpool because of its capacity to measure distances between player and ball and realistic expectations on seizure of possession, the ability for players to press, after all, is something that Jurgen Klopp values very highly. This is unbelievable. It really is. It's, it's extremely cool stuff. Uh, you know, those, those events that I talked about where people are actually watching the game and logging every time a tackle and pass happen, that's one kind of data in soccer. But in the last few years, we've started to see increasing use of tracking data, which, like you described, is based on, uh, you know, computers an analyzing video footage and tracking where everybody is and where the ball is at all times and how everyone's moving. And that's when you can actually see in the data space where space is, what players are doing with space, how runs are manipulating space, how defenses are, you know, compacting their lines or not uh, to deny space to attacks. And once you have that, you can do really, I think, you know, just it's, it's a great leap forward in soccer analytics, but it's also a great leap forward in uh, the kind of training that you need in order to do useful stuff with that data. And that's why we have, you know, all these brilliant physicists suddenly being hired by clubs to make sense of this stuff. Do you see uh, MLS teams starting to, uh, you know, this is detailed. I'm sure it costs a lot of money. First, you have to hire, you know, full-time staff to do this. And then you have to uh, purchase all the hardware, uh, these in-ground cameras or, or whatever else it, it takes to, to analyze or to, to come up with the data. But do you, do you see this, uh, the MLS teams starting to maybe catch on and, and add it themselves? Yeah, you know, there are a few MLS teams that are actually really, really good at analytics, uh, especially Toronto and Seattle, who maybe coincidentally, maybe not, have been in a whole lot of MLS Cups lately. Uh, but Ravi Ramanani at, at Seattle and Devin Ployler at Toronto are excellent analysts. And there are a few clubs that are, that are really starting to do uh, kind of leading work in the field. How, how are they uh, more advanced than others? You know, what, what are some of the particulars? Sure. So uh, part of it is, you know, do you have the ability to uh, do useful things with tracking data yet, which MLS recently entered a deal with uh, second spectrum so that clubs have access to tracking data now, but most clubs uh, in MLS, just like most clubs everywhere in the world, don't necessarily have uh, the ability, uh, you know, the technical ability or the, the right people to do useful things with that. And I think that the best clubs in MLS separate themselves by just being able to use this more advanced data that's available to them. Well, the team you follow most closely, New York City FC, uh, I, I think of this um, item that Liverpool has where they can uh, – you know, the distances between the player and the ball and, and, and recognizing when a player could arrive maybe to, to close down, those kinds of things. And then I think of second and third and four, uh, fourth player movements. Does it also, I don't know if you wrote that. I can't, I've been reading a lot about this recently. Uh, it, it seems like maybe that's where it can benefit the coaching side mostly. For sure, yeah. The big advantage of tracking data is that you know what's happening off the ball, right? Event data tells you everything that happens on the ball, but there are also, you know, usually 20 other players who you have no idea where they are or what they're doing. And you have to try to kind of infer that from what you have about what's going on on the ball. If you have tracking data, yeah, then you can track those second, third player runs uh, and you can track the size of passing lanes and things like that, uh, which is, of course, of interest to coaches. All right, John Muller, our guest from the outfield. That's out at Outfield NYCFC. Uh, he's also started a, a newsletter. 
Um, he uh, also works for American Soccer Analysis. I saw you tweet out something recently. You were the outfield. Maybe that's you. Uh, I don't know if you're in charge of the Twitter account or not. It seems maybe like you are. I'm not sure. But is that a secret or, or, or are you the guy that puts most of that stuff out? Uh, yeah, I usually handle the Twitter. Not okay. always, but usually. And if you see stat stuff from that, uh, that account, it's probably me. You should, you should tell us a little bit more about the outfield. There's a number of you guys. Chris Campbell, I've, I've talked to, I've interviewed. Uh, you guys have been at the forefront of uh, stadium news for New York City FC. But uh, just give us a, a quick overview of the outfield. How many, uh, how many of there are you? Uh, I see Kyle Schnitzer, formerly with the New York Post, uh, contributing every now and then. So, so what is this outfield thing? Yeah, so the outfield is, is a website about NYCFC. It's a group of uh, rotating cast of about half a dozen, uh, sometimes, right. sometimes less friends who, who write and talk and, and tweet about the team. Yeah, most of us, I think, have a, a pretty deep interest in tactics and analytics and just trying to understand the game better. And I think that's uh, been a really kind of unique feature of, of the outfield's coverage of NYCFC. How did you uh, all get together? Was it, are you uh, season ticket holders? I mean, how did that happen? Yeah, pretty much all of us uh, are, or at least have been in the past season ticket holders, uh, but we met mostly f- online through uh, Twitter or through NYCFC forums. Uh, you know, it was people who enjoyed having conversations with one another. And we figured if we were spending all this time talking about and trying to understand NYCFC, why not, you know, put some articles out there and, uh, and share these things with other fans. Okay. Well, the other thing that, um, stimulated me to, to get you on and, and because I want a, a clear definition and uh, how uh, uh, I could benefit from the use of expected goals and goals added. So let's, let's expected goals. I see, and you know what? I, John Strong and Stu Holden the other day on, on one of the FS1 broadcasts, I forget what game, but all of a sudden they started, they're on a expected goals rampage. I don't know what happened. Somebody must have gotten to them, but I had never heard them talk about it before. And they must have mentioned it at least a half a dozen times in the game I recently uh, viewed. But let's define expected goals and why we might find it important in this landscape. Yeah, that's been a real transformation, I think, in kind of the public awareness of analytics in the last few years is that now almost every fan has at least heard of expected goals if they don't know what they are. Uh, And really all that expected goals are is chance quality, right? Everyone knows that some shots are worth more than others. And expected goals just uses information about the shot, where it's taken, uh, what part of the body it's taken with, how it was set up, uh, and, and other contextual information to try to estimate about how likely it was that that shot was going to end in a goal. And there are a number of reasons that that can be useful, but the main reason that I, th- I think that it's useful uh, for fans and coaches and players alike is that it gets us thinking about uh, what is and is not a good shot. Well, so, certainly, like uh, if it comes from a severe angle versus, uh, and we heard Ronnie Dyla at the presser recently, you know, describe uh, Keaton Parks and, and Jesus Medina both having, uh, well, big chances. Keaton had a big, big chance, but, and I'll, I'll take the Medina thing, for instance. So for me, it's more important for, to sit down with Jesus Medina at that moment and notice that the ball was coming from the left, the service from the left. And it seemed to me that if he just uh, di- redirected with his left foot, which was his near leg at the time, rather than let it run past the left and go to the right where the defender was, uh, that would have increased his opportunity to score. In fact, I think he would have scored. That, to me, is more important to show him, sit down. You could call it expected goal. You could call it whatever you want. Yeah, it was an expected goal, but you should have used your left foot. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we talk about technique and finishing skill, and these things are real and important. But one interesting thing that expected goals has taught us is that if you're looking at, at players across the same level, say MLS, almost everybody will finish their shots at about the same rate based on the chance quality. So even if you have a guy who you feel like is a hopeless finisher, maybe you think that Jesus Medina, you know, you've seen him whiff on a couple balls or you've seen him try to strike the ball with the wrong foot a couple times. Uh, and, and you say, oh, well, you know, this guy just can't finish. Statistically, that's not really borne out. Uh, as, as far as we can tell, if you give a bunch of guys uh, in MLS the same shots over enough amount of time, they'll all finish them at yeah, plus or minus 10% of about the same rate. Oh, so that is uh, across the board in MLS, that's what you have? Across the board in MLS. So, so really, I think that, especially as fans, we, we talk way too much about finishing skill and not enough about chance creation, which really turns out to be where strikers add the most value, is are they getting on the ball in good shooting positions in the first place? Because that skill is more repeatable and more important than how they finish it. How, how is it calculated what, because uh, you talked about expected goal is, uh, you know, what foot, uh, all the different variables. How, how does that get determined? Yeah, so there are different types of expected goal models uh, using different statistical techniques. All of them use more or less the same data uh, because your data providers, especially Opta and StatsBomb, collect most of the same stuff. So all you're doing is looking to fit as much data as you have about the shot into a model that will give you the best possible uh, kind of percentage output for how likely that was to score. Uh, and StatsBomb in particular has sort of helped to move the, the needle forward on this by measuring more things that weren't available to us before. Uh, so they actually take a freeze frame of every single shot and try to figure out where the defenders are so that you get a better idea of, you know, what kind of look the, the shooter had at goal, which we didn't actually know before. And so the more data that you have, kind of the better your estimate of the chance of that shot going in gets. Do you know the data on the Keaton Parks miss uh, against DC United? Because Frederick Brilliant was coming in late, so he might have been able to get a piece of that. The keeper was trying to recover. I mean, is there a way to look back at that and, and estimate its expectation? Yeah, so I, I loved that Ronnie kind of gave us a value. Uh, he said that he thought that Keaton's chance was more valuable than a penalty. <laughs> yes. We, we know that penalties go in about 75 to 80% of the time. So a penalty is worth then about 0.75 expected goals, right? Because that's just a percentage chance. 75% of the time is 0.75 XG. Right. Uh, that's easy up, to figure out. That's just, it's a dead ball, spot kick. Yeah, that's exactly, easy. Exactly. Yeah, exact same situation every time. It's basically, you know, random where the goalkeeper's going to go, where the shooter's going to shoot. It's everybody converts those at more or less the same rate, like other shots. Uh, but for Keaton's shot, this is where kind of the different data providers and different models get interesting uh, because Opta has something that they actually call a big chance in their data. Uh, right. I never, I never knew what the heck that meant. And yeah, no, yeah. no one at Opta could tell me really. It was like, well, it's like, okay, whatever. So yeah, I, never, it, I never said it once in a broadcast, big chance, because no one could explain it to me, John. So go ahead. Well, we actually don't use the big chance in uh, American okay. Soccer Boss's XG model because it's a little bit subjective. It's on the person who's coding the game, who's tagging the game to say, well, okay, it looked like there weren't really any defenders in the way and it was pretty close to goal. And, you know, you're, you're more likely to score this chance than other chances, even in the same area. Uh, and so Opta uses that in their XG model, and they make the chance worth more 
than a non-big chance that's taken under similar circumstances. So they called Keaton's chance a big chance, just like Ronnie did. Uh, and as a result, it was worth about uh, 0.5 XG, about half a chance of going in. In StatsBomb's model, uh, which I don't know whether they use big chances or not, they do have uh, information about where the defenders were. They also have information about how high the ball was off the ground. And if I remember correctly, I think Keaton was, you know, raising his knee to try to, to tap a ball that was coming in on a bounce to him, uh, which obviously makes it harder to score. In their model, he had about a 30% chance of scoring. So that's a lot less than, you know, Ronnie's yeah. of an yeah. 80% chance of scoring. <laughs> and what do you think about, so Ronnie uh, Dialard, we're with John Muller. Uh, we're talking analytics. He's from uh, the outfield at Outfield NYCFC and also American Soccer analysis. So Ronnie, uh, he uses his own terminology, big chances. Uh, he always talks about that. He's talked about that a lot, but he used a new word and he called a, a shot from outside the area unless it like hit the post or really made the keeper, uh, you know, challenge the keeper uh, immensely. He called that a happening. A happening. So, that yeah. was new to me. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it too. So we've got big chance and we've got happenings. I, I wonder what's below that, like a, a shot that shanks, you know, for a throw in. Which we saw from uh, Pedro Santos not long ago. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really liked Ronnie's terminology uh, because, like I said, one of the most useful things that XG can teach us is just the difference between a good shot and a bad shot and the importance of taking big chances rather than happenings. Because I think that, at least at the fan level, and really there's evidence that coaches do this too, we tend to get really excited when somebody scores from outside the box, you know, a really beautiful strike from, 25, 30 yards, uh, kind of burns itself into our memory and, and we praise the player for taking that shot. But it's usually not a good shot and it's not something that you want your players to be doing. You want your players to be creating those big chances that have a much, much higher likelihood of going in. And so somebody like Alexander Matriza, uh, you know, tends to shoot happenings. He likes to shoot from outside the box from way far away, uh, whereas somebody like Jesus Medina tends to shoot big chances, right? He crashes the box, he gets in close to goal, uh, and he creates those chances that even if his technique is hopeless, he'll probably score more often on his shots uh, than if he were shooting the happenings from way outside. And that's interesting because uh, Alexander Matriza, there's been a lot of discussion about why he's not been in the 11 recently, and his tendency is to, is to drive the ball centrally from the left, use his right peg, and hit those happenings rather than the big chance of getting in the area. And, and Ronnie Dyler really for the first time was pretty specific as to why Matriza maybe is, uh, is not gaining the, uh, the pitch at the start of the match because he's not crashing the box like a Medina often enough. And then there's also the defensive side of the ball. That's right. And I was a little frustrated when Matriza dropped out of the lineup, uh, NYCFC's lineup a couple of weeks ago against Chicago because he had just had maybe his best offensive hat of the whole season. He was hitting through balls. He was combining well through zone 14. Uh, you know, he was doing all the things that you need to do to create higher quality chances instead of just shooting from 30 yards, uh, taking those happenings. But Dyla wasn't satisfied, I think, mostly because Matri is kind of lazy on defense. And obviously that's frustrating as a coach if you're giving up a lot of chances in transition because your wingers aren't tracking back. Uh, but the thing that he added to that yesterday when he talked about Mitri not crashing the box, that was new and it was interesting because it tells us, you know, there, there are different kinds of wingers and some wingers add value by doing what Mitri does, by dribbling through a lot of players, uh, by hitting those through balls. 
and that can that can be useful uh and we have ways to measure that like goals added which we may talk about here in a minute uh but yes, there, we are will. Also, there are also ways to create value uh just by being that guy who arrives in the box right who makes that late run uh who shows up to help the striker uh you know when Ronald Madrida is hitting across from the left wing and Jesus Medina is crashing from the right uh, so that there's somebody on the far post behind Eber, that can be really valuable as well. And it seems like the way that Ronnie Dyla thinks about wingers in his system right now, he wants box crashing wingers, and he wants wingers who will run hard to track back in defense. And Mitri doesn't do either of those things. So when he right. tells us that, it's a little easier to see why Mitri is not maybe his first choice for the lineup at the moment. All right, John. Yeah, goals added we have to talk about, but you also threw in zone 14. So explain that from a standpoint. Uh, if somebody listened and was like, well, what's zone 14? Yeah, it's funny how zone 14 has kind of become like coach speak. Like I feel like most coaches know what zone 14 is, but maybe other listeners don't. Uh, there was a paper in the 1990s that like, you know, it was something, some research about the World Cup and it had an 18 zone grid on the field, right? Three zones right. across, six zones up the field. And it just so happened that the 14th zone, the way that it was numbered, was the one at the top of the box. So all zone 14 means is the area at the top of the box. But for a lot of tactical reasons and analytical reasons, uh, that area is very important. And I think the way that I mentioned it just now was Mitri, who likes to start on the left wing, uh, or maybe you know inside in the half space, which is a little bit in from the wing, will dribble into zone 14, and he'll try to combine with another player to break through that last line. Uh, and so if, if you're getting the ball into that area at the top of the box, you know, good things will usually happen. No question. All right, John Muller with us. And now we, we, we went from expected goals now to goals added. As I understand it, this now predicts movement or shows movement uh, after the pass is made. I'm sure you'll be able to explain this more thoroughly than I, but now this is a, it's like a look into the future of, of the, of the game. Like what, what's going to happen next. So explain that to us, please. That's right. So sort of in the same way that expected goals tries to estimate the probability of scoring from a shot, uh, goals added tries to estimate the probability of any situation on the field ending in a goal for either team, the team in possession scoring on that possession, or them conceding if they turn the ball over. And so what it does is it, it allows us to value every touch uh, in terms of goal units, in terms of goal difference. And that turns out to be really useful uh, for analysis purposes. And, and you said recently, I think you tweeted this, or it came out of American Soccer Analysis, uh, NYCFC is a top 10 team in MLS in chance qualities. Like, uh, is this expected goal differential? I, I can't quite tell. Goal differential, expected goal differential, and overall quality of play. So, I, I, you know, I see that overall quality of play. That sounds kind of general, but, but how is that determined? That's right. Yeah. So that tweet said, I think NYCFC has a zero goal difference right now, right? They've scored and allowed the same number of goals. Okay. Uh, the points per game are very bad. They're, you know, below the league average. Uh, but their expected goals are pretty good. They've been generating chances, uh, good chances, and not conceding very good chances. Uh, and that's kind of where our team strength analysis stopped for a long time was, okay, well, we can go past goals and shots and we can look at chance quality. And that tells us a little bit more about how good a team is really playing. But goals added goes way beyond that because now we, can't, we don't just have to wait for shots to happen because those only happen 20 or 30 times a game. Now we can measure what every single touch is doing and how likely possessions are to score, whether or not they end in the shot. And that gives us a much more detailed picture of what a team is creating and conceding. And by that metric, NYCFC has been so far 
about the eighth best team in MLS, which bodes well for their future success, especially now that Max Morales is back. And does this refer back to space, 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 your newsletter? Is that what we're, we're looking at to determine these next movements? In a way, it kind of does, but also in a way it doesn't because goals added is not based on that tracking data that we talked about. It doesn't have 25 times a second information about where all 22 players are. But what it does do is use uh, more advanced machine learning techniques to com- kind of combine all of the data that we have in that event data and uh, yeah, kind of give it more context, right? We're no longer just counting passes and tackles and interceptions and headers. What we are doing is putting those things in the context of a possession and saying, what are they really worth to a team? Uh, That is, how much are they really helping the team to score or not concede? I've coached for a long time, mostly on the collegiate level, club level. We, we talked about MLS and, uh, and their use of analytics. How can this information actually help me with my players individually, maybe small groups, backs, midfielders, forwards, or however, or how, how would I uh, utilize this to, to help my team gain more points, you know, which is always the uh, goal? So I think that the usefulness, the ways that coaches could use goals added or a similar metric depends on the level of the coach. I mean, first of all, you would have to be, uh, to actually have access to something like goals added, you would have to be coaching at a level that has data on everything that's happening on the field. Uh, But if you're, you know, a pro coach in a league like MLS or better, you've got that data. And one way that clubs have used it is recruiting. Uh, You mentioned William Spearman a minute ago, who's now working in Liverpool's analytics department. Well, Liverpool's analytics department uh, has been using a model very similar to goals added for at least five years now. And they've been extremely successful in their recruiting, in part because I think they have uh, really advanced data techniques to scout players that aren't just, you know, well, how many goals did he score last year? It's how is he really creating value? Um, and that's a whole other part of this then is, is the scouting aspect, which uh, I think uh, when I give you a chance to talk about your newsletter a little bit, you're, uh, you're identifying that uh, in something you worked on uh, very late last night. Yeah, I've, I've been uh, working on a recruiting story right now or a transfer uh, story. But I, I think recruiting is kind of where clubs have found value in analytics early on, just because if you're spending millions of dollars to buy a player from a league that you probably don't have a lot of eyes on all the time, you know, stats can watch every player in every league simultaneously and help you to pick out the guys who, who might fit your, uh, your team. And so that's been really useful. But there are also other ways I think that coaches can use uh, models like goals added. Uh, for example, in opposition scouting uh, can help you to pick up tendencies that the, you then might want to go and, and check on video. Uh, it's kind of a, I guess, a second set of eyes, right, that never blinks, never gets distracted, and always tells you uh, things in the same way. Uh, it can also be useful just kind of as a, as a KPI, as a key performance indicator for your team. You can define, you know, based on your game model, what is it that you want your players to be doing? What is it that you want your team to be doing? And now you have a really sophisticated statistic that can help you to measure whether or not you're doing the things that you set out to do. And then kind of more generally, you can, you can ask empirical, empirical questions about your game model. That is, if, if I'm trying to create value in uh, you know, certain ways, uh, are those ways the best ways for my team to attack or defend? And you now have ways to measure that. And I think that's really useful. Opposition analysis. What did you think when uh, Ronnie, uh, based on a, a meeting with leadership after the, the Red Bulls game, pretty much said that uh, he's 
changed his uh, preparation from game to game to not provide as much information about the opponent to the player where they were focusing more on themselves that I, I think he, the message he got from the leadership is that we're just we're spending too much time on the opponent yeah it's maybe hard to interpret that quote but the way that I read it was NYCFC was changing too much from game to game uh, against Red Bull they tried a three at the back formation with a very weird midfield structure that was kind of similar to what they had done against Orlando a few weeks before and both times it didn't really work well. And I think players were telling him, look, let's, let's figure out how we want to play and make other teams react to that. Uh, and since then, we've seen pretty stable tactics from NYCFC, and, and they've been more successful. Yeah, and Ronnie Dyler said he, he listened and, and made the adjustment so that, uh, look, you know, it, it's a team that comes back with almost a, a, identical personnel from a, from a season ago under Dome Tehran. And uh, now unbeaten in their uh, last four. For those who are listening uh, prior to the uh, FC Cincinnati match, which comes up on Saturday night. Uh, John, before we depart, I want to give you a chance to, to talk about this newsletter and, and how uh, folks can sign up for it. Sure. So I've just started a newsletter called Space, Space, Space. Uh, if you want to check it out, it's at spacespacespaceletter.com, just all spelled out. Uh, and what it does is basically takes all the stuff that we've talked about, all the tactics and analytics and video work, and tries to roll it up into articles about mostly European soccer, about the best teams in the world, and try to understand a little bit more deeply what it is that they're doing well, what good soccer means, and what the smartest people in and around the game are doing, uh, you know, kind of to take our understanding of the game further. And you've been working on what is essentially your first entry. So what, what's our expectation when we uh, go on a little later? Yeah, so you can actually go back and uh, look at some stuff that I did last month during the Champions League knockouts that'll give you a taste for what the newsletter is about. Uh, but today's newsletter is going to be about uh, recruiting, about this endless drama that's playing out between Bayern Munich, Barcelona, and Liverpool, where Thiago is supposedly going to leave <laughs> Bayern for Liverpool, and Wijnaldum is supposedly going to leave Liverpool for Barcelona, and somehow those two players who are the same age are going to cost roughly the same amount, which to me is really weird because I think Thiago is one of the best midfielders in the world. I think Wijnaldum is a useful role player on a very good team, but is in no way worth uh, anywhere close to what Thiago is worth on the field. So I'm exploring you know, all of the research that has been done around uh, transfers to try to explain how those numbers might be in the same ballpark. Well, if you're a supporter of the game and uh, in particular New York City FC, uh, you should follow John Muller and the outfield at Outfield NYC FC. John, uh, fantastic. I, I feel more comfortable with things like expected goals and goals added, and I, I thank you for that. Uh, and thanks for being with us. Thanks for your time, Glenn. Have a good one. This is Glenn Crooks on Frame.